Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. People make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Whenever you buy a stock, you need to exercise a certain amount of skepticism. Investing in a company requires multiple leaps of faith. Will the business perform as expected? Will the market behave itself? Will the economy do what you thought it would do? So how do you minimize the risk of disappointment? After a solid day, Dow gained 92 points. S&P advanced 0.07%. NASDAQ declined 0.05%. Let me tell you one trick I have learned in 40 years of investing for improving your odds. I like to rely on a brand and, more importantly, on proven management. When you, and when you have a CEO who implicitly represents a pristine enterprise, you dramatically increase your chances of a successful investment, maybe even a major score. Today, we witnessed the best example in living memory of how things tend to shake out when you combine an amazing brand with a tremendous leader. We saw what happens when you put your faith in the Walt Disney Company. <laughs> And its CEO, the always bankable Bob Iger. We learned their new streaming service, Disney Plus, the one that launched yesterday, already has more than 10 million subscribers. And that sent the stock up soaring more than 7%. Bye, 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 bye. All aboard! Ever since I first met Bob Iger, back when I was a lowly business commentator for Good Morning America some 23 years ago, I recognize his leadership, creativity, and inspiration. He was very helpful to me. When he took over as CEO of Disney in 2005, right when Mad Money, the show began, I became a wholehearted supporter of the stock. Disney was one of the first stocks we recommended on the show, and it was also the very first stock I told you to buy and hold for your kids to learn how to teach, to get them to understand the stock market. Over time, there were plenty of moments that challenged the faithful. There's an errant movie now and then. Hey, some theme park weakness, we know that. And then, of course, the big one, the decline in ESPN subscribers. But that's when you had to put your trust in Iger's leadership. It's when you had to say, you know what? This is merely a bump in the road. Disney's such a fantastic brand that it's worth buying into weakness, which is what we did incessantly for my charitable trust, which you can follow along. All our moves before we make them by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. Now, if you believed in Disney, you have been amply rewarded. And you know what? I bet it's got even more upside, even after today's phenomenal run. A lot of price target bumps. We get some catch, some uh, hold device. But that said, I'm not calling for blind faith here. That would be terrible, terrible way to manage your money. You need the right mix of skepticism and belief, enthusiasm and caution. You should certainly never be on autopilot because things do go wrong. But when Iger told us he had to take bold action to leverage Disney's incredible franchises, that it was time to go toe-to-toe with the Netflixes of the world and roll out his own streaming service, I said, now there's a chance to get a new group of people in on the ground floor of the Disney skyscraper. 
At the time, the skeptics were everywhere. Again and again, I heard that there was no way the new streaming bundle could make up for ESPN subscriber losses. They were too steep. I told you at least wait and see. Wait and see what, what the service looked like, for heaven's sake, before, but that it was probably worth owning, especially every time the stock trade down to the 100 and the 98 level. I said, buy, 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 buy. Then at Disney's analyst meeting, April Iger laid it all out. You could get a huge library of content for $6.99 a month. Stock instantly volatile from 116 to 130 Then worked its way all the way up to 147 in July before the skeptics once again took over and pulled the darn thing. Sell, 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 sell. Back to 128. But while Disney stock was getting hammered, I was reading Iger's autobiography, his book called The Ride of a Lifetime. And you know what? It made it made me realize that you absolutely had to own this stock going into Disney Plus. You had to own it ahead of the launch. Great brand, hard charging CEO. I figured the new service was bound to be a hit. Yesterday morning, it finally launched. And most of the chatter revolved around the fact that the site kept going down. I told you this was what I call a high-quality problem. It meant Disney was seeing a lot more traffic than they'd expect. In an informal poll, people I associate with, I pegged the demand at maybe 5 million signups. Today, we got the real number. It's more than 10 million. That's double my prediction, and I was one of the biggest bulls out there. How did Disney do it? When I checked in with Iger today, he was ridiculously self-effacing as usual. He cited the company, the product, incomparable brands as the reasons they could hit that 10 million number. He said the signups, quote, speak volumes about the brand, adding that it's stunning. He did say it's stunning. Yep, even the CEO was shocked by the performance. When pressed, though, he emphasized again and again the power of Disney's brand. There's no doubt that their programming is a huge part of the streaming success, right? That's what's driving the service, uh, and that success is extraordinary. As much as I admire Iger's humility, though, I don't want to lead you astray. So let me set you straight. First, the Disney Plus bundle, it was never a gamble. Iger explained to me that the real gamble would have been to just keep doing the same thing, letting ESPN bleed off subscribers while releasing mega hit after mega hit, hoping that one day his company would get the, I don't know, benefit of that. Uh, uh, Maybe uh, licensing some of the content, the library, better to try to make each quarter. No, it's better to cut out the middleman, monetize it directly. Second. Only someone with the confidence of Iger would have seen around the corner to get this done. When Bam Tech unveiled MLB.com right here on the show, I was blown away by the technology. At last, I had a way to watch out-of-market games and talk to my dad every time Ryan Howard or Chase Utley hit a dinger for the Phillies. Bam Tech's technology was so special that Bob Iger realized it could let him build an elegant, exciting streaming service to compete with the likes of the Netflixes and Amazon. So he bought Bam Tech, lock, stock, and barrel, got it. Third, the only skepticism I had about Disney Plus was whether I needed the service myself. Now that my kids are all grown up, wrong. If anything, it's adults who are doing most of the raving. It's just like when I used to go to the Magic Kingdom alone when I lived in Florida as a young man. I've been there ten times by myself and another five times with my kids. Pretty much every time they got a new ride. One of the best times I ever had was when uh, Pop and Mom took me and my sister Nan to Disney World when we were in our 20s. It was hysterical. Disney Plus, kind of the same deal, you know. Of course, there are plenty of other phenomenal CEOs out there, and I want to applaud them. Too. Today, Miles White, the incredible CEO of Abbott Labs, announced his retirement after 21 years running the business. The second longest tenure for non-founder in today's S&P. Uh, during that time, this guy created $220 billion in shareholder value. That's a total return of more than 575%. Holy cow, Miles White. 
gold standard. Hey, just like Iger, Miles White repeatedly reinvented Abbott over the years. He's leaving the business in the hands of a worthy successor, Robert Ford. Oh, and my, with Apple rallying again, own it. Don't trade it. New all-time high, up nearly 70% for the year. It would be churlish time to mention everything CEO Tim Cook has done for this great brand. But the bottom line, this is Bob Iger's day. This is a day where all of us who believed in Iger's leadership and Disney's amazing brands made out like bandits. Not long ago, Iger told me we're just getting started. And I say it's still not too late to join him on his ride of a lifetime. Let's go to Jamie in Massachusetts, please. Jamie. Hey, Jim. Booyah. Booyah. Hey, my stock is McDonald's. We missed quarter three estimates and had to part ways with a great CEO. It's trading at 25 times earnings. Is it, is it still considered overvalued or is now a good time to add? I think that, look, Mr. Easterbrook did leave. Uh, I think that the company with a 2.5% yield, a good balance sheet, and a, a terrific, I bet, uh, Kem, look, Kem Chinsky, I've only emailed back and forth. I don't, I've won him on the show very badly. Probably not the first time, not the time yet, but I love him to come on. I think he's part of a good bench. I think he really understood the technology that we're worried about. He understands America. He's going to do more around the world. It's a buy, okay? It's a buy. It's a senior growth stock. It's a buy. Let's go to Steven in New York. Steven. Yeah, hi, Jim. Hi. Uh, with the sale of Symantec Enterprise Software and its name, I'm now a holder of Norton LifeLock. Right. And the N-O-L-K. I'd mm-hmm. like to know what your opinion is on it. Oh, no, it's real good. I think it's an incredible franchise. Uh, the CEO is dynamite. I mean, really one of the smartest people uh, around in the Valley. And I look forward to having them on out in Mountain View because they are doing such a great job. That is a great consumer fr- uh, brand, uh, Norton LifeLock. A great brand. Let's go to William in Connecticut. William. Hi, Jim Kramer. Hi. Uh, let's go back about seven years ago, 2012. I was watching your show like I do every night, and you were clicking some stocks, and you mentioned Teradyne, uh, the civil T-E-R. It was $7 and change, and you recommended highly. You said this right. stock is very low. I like it to go up in the 20s maybe in time. So, I ended up that day buying it for $7.26. Today, it was up 48 cents to $65.66. And now it pays a dividend. The first three or four years I had it, it didn't pay a dividend. Now it pays a dividend. I didn't do a thing. I bought it. I held it for the seven years. And I got the dividends now. And you know, I bought a pretty good amount. Well, right. what should I do? I never took anything. And I, I it's, such, it. it's such a good company. It is so good. Now, my discipline says that you have to ring the register and something. Why not do this? Why not take your cost basis out? Play with the house's money. It's a remarkable test and measurement company for a great industry, the semiconductor stocks, semiconductor business. I think it's fantastic. I've known it for ages and ages and ages. Uh, just take your cost basis out. Let the rest run. It's really good. Okay. It pays to be skeptical and wary. But I believe the best way to minimize risk and maximize reward, that's the crucial part of investing, is to rely on a brand and the person who stewards the brand. Disney. Hi. Oh, man, money tonight. Shares in Dexcom just shot through the roof after reporting a solid quarter last week. Is this 30% move just the beginning? I've got the exclusive with the CEO to find out. Man, I'm pitting the world's most expensive clothing rack. Whoa, sorry, Lisa. Against one of the cheapest gyms. Peloton versus Planet Fitness. May the best growth play win. And is there a, a bull market in the hospitality biz? I'm finding out from the CEO of a company that has a very high yield. Hersha Hospitality. Stick with Kramer. 
Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today. We need to talk about Dexcom, the longtime Kramer fade that makes continuous glucose monitoring systems for people with diabetes. You know I love this device because it means diabetics don't need to constantly prick their fingers to test their blood sugar levels. But Dexcom stock had been stalled out in recent months. I mean, you had that rotation out of high-flying growth stocks. Then last month, people started worrying about one of their competitors, Abbott Labs, teaming up with Tandem Therapeutics, an insulin pump maker to offer a kind of artificial pancreas. We know we like Abbott Labs. Good company. But I urge you to stick with Dexcom because the fundamentals were still fantastic. And last week, the company wore us by reporting a stunning quarter. Dexcom earned 65 cents per share. Analysts were looking for 20 cents. And that's massively better. It's biggest beat, biggest beat of 2019. Management raised their full year forecast dramatically, too. These results caught the short sellers with the pants down. The stock surged 27% last Wednesday, right in time for World Diabetes Day, which is tomorrow. You normally only see this kind of action with a takeover bid. So uh, could this have more room to run? Let's check in with Kevin Sayer. He is the bankable chairman and CEO of Dexcon. You got a better read on the quarter as his company celebrates its 20th anniversary. They rang the bell to NASDAQ this morning. Mr. Sayer, welcome back to Man Money. Thank you. Good to see you, Kevin. Good to see you. Yeah. Congratulations on 20 years. Congratulations on an amazing quarter. How does a company do that much better than everybody expects? We solve a serious problem. Uh, as, as this year has gone by, every quarter we've had incredible growth, right. and it just continues. And, and awareness of Dexcom product continues. We've worked very hard uh, to make it more accessible mm-hmm. for patients, uh, easier for them to get. And all these things are leading to just significant growth. Well, there are things that you told us that could happen that a lot of people said were not going to be able to happen. Type 2 diabetes, the shift to pharmacy. Both these are big secular growth trends that I still think may be like in their like second quarter. Well, I would tell you that the, the type 2 business is, is almost where it was when we first met. Okay. It's like it's just barely starting. The shift to the pharmacy and access is happening. Uh, we have coverage with most of the, many of the major payers right now, so patients can get product at the drugstore. We re- recently announced an agreement with Walgreens for yes. our Medicare patients to be able to go get uh, product at Walgreens. And actually, we've tied our Clarity online data system to the Walgreens portal, so patients can, you know, those two things are well, together. Won't CVS want to do the same thing with their sure, health hubs? Sure they will. Right? And sure because will. CVS can't let Walgreens be the only one that's Dexcom. No, no, no. And, and this whole... Integration of healthcare data is going to be—it's going to be really the next frontier. I'm glad you mentioned this because we had this uh, news, and I know you have a relationship with Alphabet, which is a fine company. They had this, uh, op, this uh, Nightingale, this Operation Nightingale. I, I forget that they kind of screwed up in the way it was. The truth is, is that big data is a way for us to learn how to lead our lives if it's using a Dexcom, right? Oh, I, I absolutely believe so. Uh, 
we're seeing trends all over as we do type 2 programs for example to learn where you take all the data from these patients and you can really diagnose are the drugs effective how do we change activity you know what recommendations do we make what do we what do we learn to eat yeah, snack and the at change, night and the snack at night we discover that may not thing. be so good bad thing <laughs> but that really? thing, i know a lot of friends who have, have, i have unfortunately have a lot of friends have diabetes. They, that is not something they knew. No, I know that. Well, that's all because of you guys. Now, you've also been able to build awareness. When you first were on, it was a niche little company. It that, really was. Uh, and I said, well, geez, I don't know. They're up against Abbott Labs. That's Miles Wade, who retired today. Great man. Uh, how did you get the word out? The word has happened a lot through our patient community. Okay. Uh, when we rang the bell today, we had a group of, of what we call Dexcom Warriors patients who really carry the message. There's been a lot of word-to-mouth. A, a lot of our digital marketing programs have been successful. The industry in general, you know, when people have outcomes that are so different, I've had numerous people come up to me at shows and say thank you and hold their hands up. And at first I didn't know what they were talking about. Well, it's because their fingers aren't chafed anymore because they're not doing finger sticks. And when you hear things like that and you see things like that, you know the message is getting out there. Well, it does. I, mean, I want you to walk through what the new one does, because it does make the old way feel a lot, a lot of Stone Age. I wish we don't have one here, but yeah. it's really rather miraculous, miraculous, the data that you have. Just tell people so they understand, because I, I want them to know that this thing isn't done. Oh, it's not close to done. Our current uh, G6 system has several significant changes from the previous one. The most important one is you don't have to calibrate it anymore with a finger stick. And by not calibrating with a finger stick... Those, finger sticks hurt, you know, and, and they've hurt patients for a long time. It's, it's a much better outcome. Uh, it lasts 10 days. It's, it's highly accurate. Patients trust it. It's connected to the phone. The data can be shared. You know, we share our data, and you look at that and think that's a parent-child thing. But when we rang the bell this morning, I talked to a young woman in her 20s who told us a story about her mother overseas waking her up in the middle of the night because her blood glucose had gone down so low and had the door of our hotel room broke into to wake her up because the data was being shared. When you can do things like that and deliver results like that with a system, you're really solving, as I said earlier, you're solving a very serious problem. Now, I also, because the numbers do matter, you are making much more per Dexcom. I mean, the margins exploded. I would think that last time you were talking about being constrained in, in product, that maybe it would mean that you'd make less. We're still a bit constrained on the production side, and if you look at our gross margins, they were good. We'd hope, we, we'd hope for better. Operating profit is, is where we really knocked it out of the park this quarter. What you're seeing now is leverage in our business. We've always invested heavily in R&D, and the percent of our revenues we invest is still high. But as the revenues have grown, we've kept the dollars a little closer and, and, and been more cognizant of the leverage. And, and so you see our, our SG&A expenses and R&D expenses, a percentage of revenues coming down. Like the last question. Now, we know Abbott does have a competitive product coming out very soon. It was talked about when Miles White handed the torch over to Mr. Ford. If you're watching, should you be saying, you know what, I've kind of... They, they in the end, are still too small to take on Abbott, or should we be talking about an expanding market and maybe a superior product? We've been taking on Abbott and Medtronic for a long time, and we have always had the superior technology and product. It is our mission and one of our core values to make sure our product is highly competitive and answers needs. So we'll, we'll continue to take those guys on. This is a great market, and there's room for all of us. This isn't a zero-sum game. 
There are a number of patients who li- whose lives need to be bettered, uh, particularly with what Dexcom has to offer. Well, I want to congratulate you and for all the people who stuck with it, because there's just these moments where people say, hey, listen, it's done. <laughs> it's obvious that it's a, unfortunately a huge runway for many years. Uh, it's a runway for a long time. Yeah. Thank you so much to Kevin Sayer, the chairman, president, CEO of Dexcom. Congratulations on 20 years. And let's get more awareness for World Diabetes Day. We've got Thank to you. do that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jim. Stay with Kramer. Searching for best of breed plays on powerful long term themes here, Mad Money. Translate physical fitness. Thanks to the rise of the selfie generation, there's a ton of demand for anything that makes it easier to exercise. For years, I've been telling you to harness this terrific theme with Planet Fitness, the rapidly growing chain of gyms with a laid back ethos. And for years, years, Planet Fitness put up stunning numbers, ones that everyone cheered. As a matter of fact, when you think about it, the stock is up 182% since we first spoke to the CEO in August of 2017. But this past summer, summer of our discontent, Planet Fitness peaked. The stock got hit with its first major pullback in four years as a publicly traded company, plummeting more than 31% from peak to trough. Now, while rebounded handily, there's that general, okay, uh, since then the shareholders, well, let's just say that there's less conviction that it's the right stock to own. Just as Planet Fitness was plummeting in late September, we got a new way to play the fitness space with the Peloton IPO. Now, this is a company that makes connected exercise equipment. Think high-end exercise with screens uh, where you can stream everything from fitness classes to entertainment. Oh, this little cinema verte here at our house, you have to do, you kind of have to take down the bask and the other stuff so you can see the screen. But things dry. They dry well on this. This is... It's kind of like a dryer within a dryer. Peloton was widely hailed as a a real major disruption in the industry. I mean, who needs a gym where you can take a class from uh, your comfort in your own home with Peloton? And there was a lot of hype going into this deal. Right after it came public, though, I told you to stay the heck away. Peloton looked too expensive in a market that had turned against turbocharged growth companies with no earnings. Sure enough, in less than a month, the stock fell from 25 and changed down to 21. However, in recent weeks, Planet Fitness has gotten its groove back. You can see this little move up here. It's not bad, right? And uh, Peloton actually seems to have found some solid footing. They both reported good numbers, and both stocks have bounced back hard from the lows. So now that the smoke has cleared, what do we do? How do we stack these up? Uh, Do we stick with Planet Fitness as the best-of-breed operator, or is it time to swap into the up-and-coming Peloton, if only just because, well, you know, it's got multiple uses? Right at this moment, I still prefer Planet Fitness. It remains the better buy at these levels. As for Peloton, I think it's too risky to own here, although I can't imagine a future where it actually is worth owning because it's got great growth. Even after the stock's 5.2% run today on the news that it's exploring apps for Amazon Fire TV and the Apple Watch, I want to approach this one with some caution. Don't take my word for it. I want to show you how to make this kind of comparison for yourself. Why don't we start with Planet Fitness? The last time we checked in with CEO Chris Rondo back in March, the company was firing all cylinders. Terrific membership growth. Awesome same-store sales. How do they do it? Well, let's listen to Rondo. We always say it's the marketing machine, that flywheel effect that we have. We talk about that a lot. 9% of every monthly membership dues goes right back into marketing. So every incremental member fuels tomorrow's joins. This thing's a little tight, but it's better on the Peloton. 
right. Uh, okay, that's the kind of thing investors love to hear. Plus, Planet Fitness has a franchise-based business model that makes it much easier for them to expand because the franchisees are practically lining up to open more locations. That is really a trick to profitability. Look at this. See, look what it does. You can straighten it out. You can go like this. I mean, this thing does everything. But then the stock, this one, hit a, a, a wall as high-flying growth names fell out of favor with the Wall Street fashion show. Planet Fitness sold off for most of the summer, and then when the company reported a big top and bottom line beat in early August, well, investors focused on the one piece of hair on the darn thing. The same store sales came in at 8.8%. Well, analysts were looking for a 9 yeah, can you imagine that's what matters in this market? It didn't, it didn't even matter that management raised their full-year forecast. Stock got hammered anyway. Sell-off was relentless, with Planet Fitness sinking from 77 down to 56 and over the course of two months, even though the fundamentals were totally sound. I know a bunch of you called during this period in the lightning round. I kept saying, listen, I think it's okay. But, wow, I mean, it really got clobbered. All right, how about Peloton? When the Exercycle and Plus company became public at the end of September, it priced at $29 a share then, and then started trading at $27 before closing at $25 and changed. That's awful. The deal stunk up the joint because they got the timing wrong. Peloton's got explosive accelerating revenue growth, or R, got up 110% in their 2019 fiscal year. That is great. Six months ago, the market would have lapped this thing up, but then we got inundated with IPOs that have very similar characteristics. Fast growers with no clear path to profitability and rising costs, especially marketing costs, which at Peloton are growing even faster than sales, and that's something we don't like to see. The stock eventually bottomed at 20 bucks and change in late October. At that point, the weak hands got washed out, and Peloton stock began to bounce, climbing to, uh, to 24 right before it reported last week. So let's talk about earnings, or lack thereof. Peloton delivered some, uh, well, let's say it managed to deliver some truly impressive numbers, uh, even if the stock got dinged on the news, briefly pulling back to 22 and change, although since it's recovered those losses. The company's sales came in substantially higher than expected. We like that, up 103% year over year. Connected fitness subscribers also up 103%. Great. Low churn, robust engagement, and much stronger than anticipated margins. Better yet, the guidance was very encouraging. But you know what the best part was of this PTON? On the conference call, Peloton's co-founder and CEO, John Foley, laid out the strategy. While the company's spending aggressively to boost growth, he said, I believe if we pull back on growth, we could be profitable tomorrow, end quote. However, Peloton's not going to do that because they think the worldwide opportunities here are just too good to pass up. So they're going to be faced with some losses for a while. In a vacuum, I would recommend Peloton right now. That's how fast it's growing. I like that. Peloton, well, it's, if that last quarter, geez, probably one of the fastest growers in the entire market. But it is a fresh face IPO and a market that dislikes them right now, especially the ones that keep spending to so-called win or meaning they lose a lot of money. And then in a few months, they got the lockup on insider selling. That's when it expires. You saw what that did to Uber. When that happens in March, I know that's still away, but people can be thinking about it. I expect the stock to get hit. Now, that is probably when you pounce. Okay. All right, how about the numbers from Planet Fitness? Much, much simpler story. I like that. You saw that in the market's much simpler uh, reaction to its results. Last Thursday, Planet Fitness posted inline earnings with higher-than-expected revenue, up 22% year-over-year. More importantly, their same-store sales came in at 7.9. Okay, this time they beat because people are looking for 7.2. And they opened 42 new locations during the quarter, bringing the total to nearly 1,900. For the full year, management raised their top and bottom line forecasts as well as their same-store sales guidance. They're talking about 8.6%. Wall Street was looking for 84 Best of all, Planet Fitness had a terrific conference call. Chris Rondo told us that 75% of their sales growth came from new members. That's organic, as their low-key gym brand keeps attracting customers with a more casual approach to exercise. 
Long-term, he believes Planet Fitness can double its store count in the United States, so much for the people who think there's cannibalization, with the company's deep-pocketed franchisees paying for most of the expansion. That's that asset-light model I like so much. It's exactly what you want to hear. In response, the stock folded 9% on Friday. How did Planet Fitness and Peloton stack up each next to each other? Planet's a traditional gym chain. Peloton makes most of its money selling equipment with a subscription kicker, and I like the subscription economy. Planet's got terrific growth for anything you might find in a shopping center. Peloton's another league. On the other hand, Planet's solidly profitable, while Peloton's losing money pretty much hand over fist. Now, they both reported great quarters when it comes to growth. Peloton stock didn't behave that way. In the end, these are very different stories. Peloton's the kind of hypergrowth name that the market wants no part of right now. That can change. Got that insider lockup overhang. So even though the company just put up some fantastic revenues, I can't give the stock my blessing here. You need to wait on the sidelines. The bottom line, in a market that favors profitable growth, sticking with what's working, well, you know what? That's Planet Fitness. The stock never should have been down so much over the summer. And even the latest move, it's got more room to run. As for this one, well, I got to tell you, in the end, it can also be kind of a cool exercise. Let's take calls. Let's go to Philip in Alaska. Philip. Yes, Jim. Greetings from Anchorage. Anchorage. We got guys from Anchorage calling. What's up? Uh, we don't have any snow yet. <laughs> no? I think we're going to get some before you get it. What's going on? Uh... Just interested in uh, one stock that I thought I'd call you about, uh, Restoration Hardware Holdings. Well, I think that Gary Friedman has figured out how to work, negotiate the tariffs, which a lot of people felt he couldn't do. They were wrong. They did not understand how good an operator he is at 172. I think the stock is only 3.2 billion. I have said over the long term it can go to 5 billion. I am not walking away from that. I'm walking toward it. I need to go to Phil in New York. Phil. Sir. Kings. Yes. Yes. In Long Island, thanks for taking the call. Okay. James, Smile Direct Club goes public on September 12th. Right. Opens at $21 a share. Mm-hmm. Within the next four hours, it sells down to $16. Right. Within the next 90 days, it sells down to below $9 a share. Right. Eight today, right? Uh, so uh, how, how, how do the underwriters justify that, and what do you think about the company? Okay, I, the conference call was just a complete disaster. I mean, now they're talking about, like, legislation, all other places could hurt them. They had a glitch in marketing. They're spending a fortune. How do the underwriters do it? How do they let it happen? My friend, they let it happen because there's a lot of money to be made. It's Wall Street! All right, the market doesn't really want hyper-growth with no earnings right now, like what you get from Peloton. It wants profitable growth like Planet Fitness. But I still believe Planet Fitness got more room to run. And look, I'm not bailing on this Peloton. One day it's going to be good. Right now it's kind of in a holding pattern where it's got, which is the single best way to actually to straighten out a basket. You don't know that. All right, much more man money ahead. I'm sitting with the CEO of Hershey Hospitality Trust. That's a read of names that you recognize in the hospitality sector when you hear about it, especially from Philadelphia, Rittenhouse. Finding out the business is going strong, 8% yield. Then I spotted an opportunity that's been overlooked. I'm talking about 5G. I think it's misunderstood. But first of all, your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. We had an oddity here in recent years. 
the lodging real estate investment trusts have been hammered. Now, a lot of this is just, a, I think, a little faux worry. It's a flood of competition from outfits like Airbnb, Verbo. Remember we had them on? But how can we tell when these stocks have been punished too much? Take Hersha Hospitality Trust. Now, this is a small-cap real estate investment trust. Owns 48 mid- to high-end hotels, mostly in major metropolitan areas across along the uh, coast. Think Boston, Philadelphia, Florida, California. Over the past five years, Hersha's stock price has been cut in half. And this reported a challenging quarter last week, but when you drill down, there is a new wrinkle here. In 2017, some of the company's key Miami properties got hit by Hurricane Irma. Now, though, Hearst is ready to put those hotels back into service right in time for the Super Bowl, where you can't get a hotel room. I can tell you that already in the beginning of February. If you believe they can make the numbers, well, this stock's got an 8% yield. I think it's big. I like it. Which is why I want to take a closer look with Jay Shaw. He is the CEO of Hirsch Hospitality Trust. Learn more about how his company's doing, where it's headed. Mr. Shaw, welcome back to Man Money. Good to see you. Good to see Thank you. you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. All right, so sometimes I say to people, look, um, 8% is a red flag, but your group has been under tremendous pressure. You've got no, uh, no problem with cash flow, and you also have this upside from Miami. So why don't you tell people, because it's been a while since you've been on, why this is attractive at this level? Yeah, I think, you know, you hit on some of the high points before. We've had, you know, in addition to being disrupted at two of our big hotels in Miami that, you know, together comprise close to 10% of our EBITDA. We had those offline for a whole year, and uh, they're back online. But after you close a hotel for a year, it takes a year to two years to ramp up. I think the South Florida dynamic with the convention center being yeah. open again, the Super Bowl coming, next year Miami is expected to be the top growth market of the top 25 MSAs. And so that gives us a lot of optimism on on really filling that hole, which okay. we've been living with for about a year and a half now. And, uh, and secondly, you know, what we're also noticing is that it's a bit of a risk-off environment right now with right. hotel stocks. And, yeah. and I think that's kind of driven by some of the uncertainty. But I, but I think what's being overlooked in our stock is across the last two to three years, we've We've done two very strategic, two very strategic initiatives. I think that was driven by the fact that we saw Revpar decelerating mm-hmm. a little bit because of uncertainty. So we, uh, in starting in seventeen and eighteen, we have recycled close to just under a billion dollars in capital. We sold uh, hotels that we felt were mature and weren't going to be producing at more than market level growth. Monetized the value on those and bought. Uh, newer assets, more strategic, pure play to our strategy with much higher EBITDA growth profile. Okay, so what people need to know, I'm, I'm, I always stay, I don't mean to be, I happen to love the Rittenhouse. That's right. why I always stay when I go to CICU at the Eagles games. Right. It's just, it's the best hotel in Philadelphia. I don't think there's much doubt about that. But you also have a cluster strategy that I like. Uh, and that seems to, I think, immunize you in a lot of ways to where the economy might be. Yeah, I think... You know, it does help us a lot because, you know, when you, with the, the cluster strategy combined with the fact that we're very market focused, but somewhat agnostic to segments. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you mentioned the Rittenhouse, leading hotel in Philadelphia, and, uh, you know, very productive investment, a great hotel, but we also own the Westin, right. and we own the Hampton Inn at the convention center. And so the cluster strategy creates some synergies for us. Uh, with SGNA and overheads, it allows us to share consumer insights. Sales and distribution strategies are positively impacted. But it also, having multiple segments in the same market, uh, you know, different segments 
peak and mature at different times in the cycle. So it allows for uh, it allows for us to have growth throughout the entire cycle rather than it being peaky. Okay. Now there is a not enough people cover you, and I've known your company for years. There is an outfit, uh, BMO, uh, that has you rated as an underperform, and their, their headline is "Sour Big Apple." That they that you do have twenty four percent of your businesses in New York, right. and that New York is weak now. I get the varying reports about New York being weak. I also feel, to me, that Airbnb may have peaked. Yeah. Uh, or they would have come public, frankly. Yeah. Is, is Airbnb, did it erode a lot of the business here? And is, is it coming back? Yeah, I think, you know, Airbnb has definitely had an impact. I, you know, it, 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 we have to be honest with ourselves. What, it, what it's really, where we feel the most impact from Airbnb is on compression nights. That's when, you know, the cities used to compress out in the inventory, and that allowed with dynamic pricing to drive stronger ADRs. And Airbnb, by creating a lot of shadow inventory, diluted some of that. And compression nights have been down. That being said, you know, we're seeing with Airbnb, as cities are starting to enact le- legislation, right. to, you know, so that they're not illegally sidestepping mm-hmm. hotel regs and renting rooms as illegal hotels, you know, you're seeing a real drop-off. Santa Monica and San Francisco, after legislation was enacted, close to six months after, you saw a 50% drop in listings. And so as more and more jurisdictions pass legislation... And there are many, is it in the pipe for a lot? Do you see it happening? Yes, well, for sure. We're seeing it uh, We're seeing it across lots of markets. In some of your key markets, Washington, uh, with that St. Gregory, or yeah. New York? Yeah, well, in New York, you know, we're... we're you know, you're seeing that the number of new, the growth has flattened out. Right. That's so absolutely true. So check it. that for the, when I hear about, I'm very down on a lot of these companies that have become public. Okay? Right. Airbnb would be one this market doesn't want right now. The growth is flattening. As far right. As it is flattening. It is flattening, which for us is a good sign. Yes. Because, you know, like when you talk about New York, it is 20, 24%. And there is supply growth. So, you know, for getting even the Airbnb, there's been a lot of growth there. And everyone gets very focused on supply growth, and we all should be. But more importantly, it's the demand and supply growth dynamic that matters. And for the first time in several years, we're going to have 4.8% demand growth in New York with only 4% supply growth. This is the inflection point. I think the 8% yield is terrific. I've known you and I've known your business for a very long time. I think it's an anomaly that has to be taken advantage of by people who watch. Okay, that's Jay Shaw, CEO of Hershey Hospitality Trust. 8% 8% yield with improving fundamentals and a very big term in Miami. And you just heard about the supply demand in New York City and the laws that are changing that are in your favor out west. Ned Money's back into the break. It is time. It's time for the lightning. And then the lighting rounds over. Are you ready? Ski dad over the light round. Come on, start with James in New York. James. Yeah. Listen. Booyah. Booyah. I love the show. Thank you. You do a great job. Something bothers me, though. What? For the past, well, 35 years I've been in the market, and I had about a good 25 of the 30 in Coca-Cola. Okay. And it ain't moving. I understand. And uh, James, the other James, not you. James Quincy's doing a darn good job. I think the company has got a great long-term projection. It yields 3%. He's reinventing the company. Was it the greatest quarter in the world? I like Pepsi quarter more. But I, I want you to own Coke. I'm not going to tell you to sell it. I think it's too well run. How about we go to Betsy in Ohio? Betsy! Oh, very cool to talk with you. Right back hey, at you. Hey, uh, my, 
My stock is MTD, Metler Toledo. Yeah, you know, instrumentation, it's good. When I think instrumentation, what do I think? I think Danaher, okay? D-H-R. I need to go to Pratik in New Jersey. Pratik! Hey, Booyah, Jim I bought it for $73. Shall I cut it? I'm to break it up. What stock was that? I eat the icon. Enterprise. Oh, icon enterprises. Well, you know what? It has a high yield, but I can't really tell what it owns. Uh, I need, I like to recommend stocks where I actually know what they own, but I do know that Carl Icon is a very good investor. Let's go to Michael in Florida. Michael. Hi, Mr. Kramer. Booyah. Booyah, Michael. I have a two-part question, Mr. Kramer. A couple weeks ago, you said you were going to be doing a segment on Bed Bath and Beyond and the new CEO, Mark Trent from Target. I watch every day, and I haven't seen it yet. Are that you is my on? bad. I have not done the work. I've been jamming a lot of interviews. It's been a mistake. I continue to think that uh, John Duskin, I know very well, told me that he did this great presentation, that Mark Trenton's going to do a real job. It looks like he is. I apologize. Uh, and I, I, Ben Stoddle and I are going, we're going to just really we're going to go to town on this one. And I, I really do. I try to cut. I try to cover so many different things, but I did not get to that one yet. And I, I keep hoping it goes back to thir- to thirteen uh, to below thirteen, and it hasn't done that yet. But I promise you, I will do that story. Ben, if you're listening, we're doing Bed Bath and Beyond. Adam in California, please. Adam. Hey, Jim. Booyah. Booyah. Hey, recently a pharma company just received some good news on a phase two drug trial that overnight got a 15% haircut. What's up with Rihanna? R-E-T-A. You know, I got to do some work on that. I think you got hurt by the fact that they did the big underwriting. I got to see whether the underwriting was worth being in. That's what I think hurt it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. is 5G. Now, we tend to think of it as a next-generation cellular technology, like 4G networks. Most of this used now are maybe 3G, nothing really special, right? And uh, maybe a little more reliable, maybe a little faster. But you know what? That is completely the wrong way to look at it. After listening to Liam Griffin, the thoughtful CEO of Skyworks Solutions, on his conference call last night, I have a whole new understanding of this, of this issue. Griffin explained that 5G isn't merely an evolution of cell phones. It's a revolution in a broad range of technologies. Your phone is just the tip of the iceberg. How big is the iceberg? Last week, Qualcomm dazzled Wall Street, given a report, really an unbelievable quarter. Talked about a gigantic cell phone refresh cycle, 200 million 5G phones in 2020. That sent the stock surging more than 10% over the next two days. But after hearing from Skyworks last night, I'm thinking Qualcomm gave you too low ball a number. What's Liam Griffin's prediction? He says, and I quote, we expect a substantial upgrade cycle as the 5 billion mobile subscribers today migrate from their 3 and 4G devices to 5G, end quote. The cycle is starting now, not for next year, and it's happening all over the world. He says, turns out 5G could be much bigger than the last two upgrade cycles. How's that possible? Well, simple, because it's brand new technology. Griffin explains that, quote, it offers gigabit speeds, ultra-low latency, and greatly enhanced network capacity, end quote. So when you see that 10 million people just signed up for Disney Plus and it kept crashing in the service, you should be thinking about the need for 5G to ensure that these streaming services run smoothly. 
I bring this up because 5G is widely misunderstood. This technology is about as fascinating as it's about facilitating, it's about facilitating the massive digitization of pretty much everything. That Internet of Things, IoT that I talk about, every piece of hardware in your life. For example, most people don't really think too much of the, of the connected car. I don't know. With 5G, your car can connect at least 10 times faster, and that puts a whole new spin on the concept. No wonder all the major automakers line up for these chips, including BMW and Audi, both of which Skyworks specifically called out. Their industrial client list is very impressive. It's Honeywell, uh, Siemens, GE, Philips, Rockwell Automation. So if you think 5G is no big deal, maybe you aren't thinking big enough. It will be every wearable device, indoor, outdoor, portable speakers, GPS, everything. Still, it's constantly underestimated. Even today, Skyworks saw its own stock down roughly six bucks on last night's quarter, and then it spent the rest of the day rebounding. You know, it actually closed just down 45 cents as it dawned on people that they were being given an incredible buying opportunity once again for 5G. Same thing happened to Corvo and Marvell Technologies, all semiconductor companies with major 5G exposure. I need you to think of 5G as a game changer. This technology is big, like when Microsoft and Intel joined forces to create a PC that was far more powerful than the old mainframe, or like when Apple unveiled the iPhone. Or when we went from dial-up internet to broadband to wireless. You know this already, except the role has only just begun, so most people can't see it with their own eyes. Now, not all of these 5G chip makers are worth buying here. I mean, with Huawei, the huge Chinese filmmaker, still blacklisted, some of these companies are uh, out one of their largest customers. But as Skyworks uh, Griffin says, you can't ignore their huge business with Oppo, Vivo, and Xiaomi. If we get a trade deal, I think you see a quantum leap in orders as Huawei would love to start buying for them. Again, their chips are practically indispensable. Long story short, the 5G train is leaving the station. But you'll still get chances to buy these stocks at a discount periodically, especially if the trade talks fall apart. Hey, some 5G trains are departing later than others. Companies like Cisco, which gave you disappointing guidance tonight. Cisco is more of an enterprise 5G, not consumer 5G. And that's many quarters down the road. So do not look for it to turn the trajectory of Cisco stock around. But China or no China, enterprise or consumer, 5G is a tidal wave. And once you ride it with at least one of the major semiconductor players, because this rising tide will lift all boats. Stick with Kramer. Disney great, Cisco not that great. A lot more there. Don't want to give up on it. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Man Money. I am Jim Kramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.